Welcome to episode number 162 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor and I also help out with social media for the Northern Miner. And we have a very timely show for you today. We have the fireside chat with Kirkland Lake CEO Tony McCooch. And this was done in October with the Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro. And this is timely because yesterday Kirkland Lake Gold announced that they are planning to acquire Detour Gold, and the stock took a pretty big hit. It was down 17% in one day on the Canadian market. Let's see what Tony McCooch has to say, and it is quite interesting because at one point in the interview, Anthony asks Tony McCooch if he wants to become a barrack type company. Does he want to become, does he want to get bigger, and what's the goal? with Kirkland Lake Gold, and it was very interesting in this present context because he said, our main goal is to be profitable. So the market feels otherwise with the with what happened here with the stocks. So kind of an interesting thing. And then Trish Saywell, our acting editor-in-chief, just wrote a story yesterday, and it's our main headline right now, about the acquisition. And Tony McCooch says that these are all money-making operations. We'll go deeper into it in a few couple of minutes here. But uh, yes, so we've got lots, lots on the fireworks here in the Canadian gold mining space. And also, Christmas is coming. I don't know if you've noticed on the weekends there, I sure have, that things are starting to get a lot more Christmassy out there. Starting to hear Christmas music in the grocery stores. So if you are looking for what I call the perfect gift for the miner in your life, look no further than the art and humor of John Kilburn, Cartoons from the Northern Miner. So we have an awesome book by John Kilburn, a.k.a. JK, and it's a book full of mining cartoons. It's beautifully done. Our our copy editor, Issa Cunanan, colored the cover, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. We're all really proud of it. The foreword is by Pierre Lassonde. It was edited by John Cumming, our former editor-in-chief, and Issa Cunanan. And so that's available. That's $34.99 plus shipping. You know, gift-giving, in my experience, it's all about the thoughtful gift. And that's what I think we have here on offer is a really nice, thoughtful gift. This isn't a gift certificate. This is something for someone that loves mining. So if you know someone that loves mining and that's their passion, there's probably a lot of people on this show that do, I highly recommend you to go to northernminer.com slash JK. Also in Northern Miner, we always have so much going on and I'm quite proud to be with an organization that is really doing all sorts of stuff. We have a new Diamonds in Canada issue and this is a magazine that comes out twice a year. We're going to go into the editorial that Alicia Hyatt wrote for it. And yeah, you're going to see some pretty sobering numbers of what's going on in the diamond industry. We're not going to dwell on it, but we're just going to make sure everyone's aware. And so if you are a diamond person, or if you're just interested to see what's going on there, uh, you can find all those news stories are on the left-hand sidebar of the homepage, right at the bottom. We have a Diamonds in Canada section, and underneath is a yellow button, and that will take you directly to the physical uh, version that you can download as a PDF. And so this is available to subscribers of the Northern Miner. It's one of our perks, you might say, or one of the bonus publications that you get as a result from subscribing to the Northern Miner. So 
Another reason to subscribe. It really is a one-of-a-kind publication in this. There aren't many diamond publications out there that focus on diamond mining, so it's precious, as we might say. As well, we have a new TNM leaders. We have Deborah McComb, who is president and CEO of RPA, and Rick Howes, president and CEO of Dundee Precious Metals, and they've been added to the TNM leaders roster. If you want to watch their interviews, you can go to northernminer.com slash TNM dash leaders, and you can see their interviews as well as all the other ones that have been posted. And it's a real resource for anyone that's looking to learn from the executive side of mining. There's a ton of really well-known CEOs there. Sean Boyd, you can watch his videos for free as a preview of what's available. That is also going on. And also, there are still tickets available for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Their 32nd annual dinner and induction ceremony is happening on January 9th, 2020 at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. There's a reception, there's a dinner. If you want more information, just go to miningholloffame.ca and click on annual ceremony. Scroll down from there and you will see uh, ways for you to buy a ticket to attend or whether if you have you can buy groups of 10 tickets if you have a whole bunch of people at your company that want to attend or you can also donate to a student that's always welcome so as a northern miner was a founding member of the canadian mining hall of fame and we wear that badge proudly anthony vaccaro is the host i believe he was there last year uh, pierre lassonde gave him I, I think they passed the gold jacket if i'm not mistaken i'll have to get some more information on that um, but I believe he is our host, so that should be a very good time. The induction ceremony features Jerry Asp, Alex G. Belogue, Hans T. F. Lundberg, and Eberhard, also known as Eb Shirkus. If you want to find us online, you can visit us at northernminer.com, or you can find us on Twitter, which is very active, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, at the Northern Miner and on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. And turning to the website, here we are, Kirkland Lake Gold, to acquire Detour Gold, an all-share deal worth $4.9 billion. Trish Saywell has this story, and I'm just going to get right into it here. Kirkland Lake Gold's proposed $4.9 billion all-share acquisition of Detour Gold and its open pit mine in northeastern Ontario will add 15.4 million ounces of gold or eight years to Kirkland Lake's mineral reserve base and lift the company's annual gold production to 1.5 million ounces. I think it's somewhere around, yeah, actually it says here, it's, uh, I was going to say it's somewhere around a million right now. Kirkland Lake Gold's Macassa Mine in northern Ontario and Fosterville Mine in Australia's state of Victoria are on track to produce a total of between 950,000 ounces and a million ounces gold in 2019. And the Detour Lake Gold Mine produces 600,000 ounces of gold per year, and it has a mine life of more than 20 years. Kirkland Lake Gold President and CEO Tony McCooch notes that, as it did with its Macassa and Fosterville operations, Kirkland Lake will optimize detour operations, and the company will start engineering work to evaluate expansion opportunities, which he says could lead to production growth, improved unit costs, and higher level of reserves and resources. Quote, We have already taken two mining operations, Macassa and Fosterville, and transformed them into high-quality assets that generate industry-leading earnings and free cash flow, McCooch said in a statement. The addition of Detour Lake provides an opportunity to add a third cornerstone asset that is located in our backyard in northern Ontario. Now, 
it's quite uh, is the word fortuitous that I mean Anthony was interviewing Tony McCooch at the Progressive Mind Forum, which is going to be our feature interview here uh, in this show, and that was in October. And then just two weeks ago in Zurich, Anthony was talking to John Hathaway, who's a famous, uh, well, famous in the industry portfolio manager, and his he helps run the Tocqueville. Uh, asset fund, I believe it's called, and uh, he's a major gold investor. In that interview, he describes how Detour was taken over recently and how it was reorganized in a way that could make it profitable. And so that's just a little bit of backdrop there. And by the way, if you want to find that YouTube video of Anthony talking to John Hathaway, what we did is we linked right to the moment where he starts talking about Detour. And I just posted that this morning. It's Tuesday morning. So if you look on our Twitter page, you will see Anthony talking to uh, John Hathaway about Detour. So you're getting a multimedia experience here from the Northern Miner. I'm reading you the print that's online. And uh, we have video and we're going to do some audio of Tony McCooch coming up here. And you're going to get Tony McCooch before this transaction happened, but really uh, talking about his business. And all in the midst of this 17% drop yesterday in Kirkland Lake Gold stock price. So a whole bunch of variables for us to compute here. Let's go back to Tony McCooch. During a conference call to discuss the acquisition, McCooch noted that there had been about $40 million spent on exploration at Detour over the last five years and that Kirkland Lake, quote, can see spending that amount of money every year. So obviously they think there's a lot more there at the Detour site. Quote, we think there's potential to find new deposits in this region and not far from the Detour mill. He also dismissed concerns that Kirkland Lake's current assets, Macassan and Fosterville, are high-grade underground mines versus Detour's lower-grade open pit operation. Quote, they all have a lot in common. They are all good businesses that make money. Okay, so we have the Detour Gold uh, CEO replying, Mick McCullen. Quote, there's a lot of benefits that just aren't available to us on a standalone basis. Anyway, I'll let you go to the northernminer.com website and you can read all about it. It is a, a pretty interesting story in the mining space and we have lots of perspectives from a lot of different sides here in a lot of different formats. So enjoy that one. And moving on, I want to hit this editorial by Alicia Hyatt, who's been our Diamonds in Canada editor for as long as I've been working at the Northern Miner, which is since 2012. So Alicia knows the subject, and she's also editor of the Canadian Mining Journal, by the way. And I was reading this editorial by her, and it's got a great title, kind of sad news for the Diamond people, editorial, Diamond Sector Battles Crisis Fatigue. Now, you'll remember this whole diamond debate from our Ira Thomas recording of a presentation that she gave at the Canadian Mining Symposium, where she was fairly confident in diamond's ability to shrug off the whole the lab-created diamond uh, trend that's been growing, which I always thought was pretty amazing at how it was already at 5% like a year ago. It already had 5% of the market, which to me seemed like a huge number, you know, and she made, you know, arguments that were fairly persuasive, uh, say that uh, the lab-grown diamonds have been losing their value, whereas uh, the real ones aren't. I think there might be uh, maybe a divergence in like the super, you know, $100 million diamond versus the, you know, $3,000 diamond space and how 
you know, how those are valued, like the hardcore collectors, maybe that doesn't change anything if you're spending multiple millions of, uh, maybe not $100 million, but if you're spending multiple millions of dollars on a diamond, you're a hardcore collector and this lab thing doesn't even matter to you. It's irrelevant, I would imagine. And uh, But if you're a millennial that's getting married and really doesn't care where their diamond comes from, I can see this you know, lab-grown diamond thing, especially if there's a big discount. I mean, this whole three months of your salary for the diamond ring thing, I don't think millennials have three months of salary to give, I mean, to generalize. So anyway, so Alicia goes into some very interesting, what I would call sobering numbers. And before I go, go into them, and don't forget we had the Paul Zimniski episode which was taken from the Diamonds in Canada uh, Symposium. And that was, I believe, in June. And Paul Zimniski basically said that the real task for the diamond producers is a, mar- a marketing task. This is the way to solve this diamond issue or to deal with it. It has to be through marketing, that somehow real diamonds, you have to convince people, are worth it. Okay, or non-lab-grown diamonds, shall we say. So now we have some figures here. Conditions have been very difficult of late. So this is Alicia Hyatt's editorial. As Paul Zimniski points out, we are currently in the third crisis the industry has seen in 15 years. Recent figures from diamond powerhouse De Beers are illustrative. In the first half of 2019, De Beers' revenue decreased by 17%, to $2.6 billion compared to $3.2 billion in last year's first half. Its rough diamond sales fell by 21% to $2.3 billion compared to $2.9 billion last year. Looking at its August sale alone paints an even starker picture, with revenue declining 44% to $280 million. So this is getting pretty serious, I would say. Get this, in response to the tough environment and thin margins in the midstream of the diamond business, De Beers has been unusually flexible with its customers, letting its site holders defer purchases and lower their annual purchase quotas for the year. Junior producers, who obviously can't be flexible, are struggling or worse. Stornoway Diamond, which opens its Renard Mine in 2016 with so much promise, has been bought out by its creditors. And we have a whole other story on that, which is entitled, Stornoway Creditors Step In to Save Renard. Yeah, so you'll see a whole bunch of new diamond stories on the northernminer.com website. I highly recommend them, particularly the editorial here. You can read the rest of it online. And uh, you know, diamond space is uh, always has its own particular sort of place in the mining sphere as a kind of non-metal, but it's a very interesting market. And with technology being what it's being, I don't think anybody should ever get too comfortable because you never know. Physics already enables the production of gold. It's just a matter of it takes so much energy that it's nowhere near worth it to make gold uh, materially, but you can do it. And so I don't think anybody should ever get too comfortable here. So this diamond thing. I think uh, diamonds may not be your thing, but you still might want to pay attention to what's going on here because you just never know what happens if all of a sudden those energy costs somehow come down. If they start figuring out fusion or who knows, uh, everything could change quite quickly. And and so, so we'll leave it at that with the diamonds. And also, I want to take a look at this BHP increasing its stake in Sol Gold. It sort of relates to our Latin American theme. 
BHP Billiton is spending $22 million to boost its stake in Solgold to 14.7% from 11.1%, making it one of the two largest shareholders in the Ecuador-focused junior exploration company. Newcrest Mining owns about 14.8%. So yeah, so Ecuador, let's not forget, Tom Azapardi had that amazing report from, I think it was late July, early August, where in Ecuador... It was the, uh, don't forget, that was when the main building where the government does its business was taken over and they were forced to flee to a neighboring city. I'm still waiting for the follow-up report on that. That was, they do it. So anyways, so let's go back to the story. BHP is acquiring 77 million shares at 22.15 pence per share, a 13% premium of Solgold's closing price on November 22nd. Under the deal, BHP agreed not to acquire more shares in the company over the next two years without Saul Gold's consent, but the investment does give it options for 19.25 million shares at a price of 37 pence through November 2024. So it's interesting. You know, Saul Gold has been doing a lot of work, from my understanding, in Ecuador. So maybe this is BHP's way of getting a foothold, a toehold in the country. Not sure if they already have stuff there. Let's see. I don't see anything in the article. And yeah, there's Newcrest who's also participating. So it's getting interesting with Soul Gold over there in Ecuador. I'll just read a couple more paragraphs. Uh, the transaction underscores the attractiveness of copper assets. As existing copper mines age and the appetite for the metal grows with rising demand for renewable energy and the electrification of the transportation sector. Solgold's Apala deposit in northern Ecuador contains 8.4 million tons of copper and 19.4 million ounces of gold, which is enormous, in the indicated category, and another 2.5 million tons of copper and 3.8 million ounces of gold in the inferred category. Okay, so finally, Matthew O'Keefe of Cantor Fitzgerald says the investment puts BHB, quote, on par with Solgold's other major shareholder, Newcrest Mining, supporting competitive tension. He also points to Solgold's enormous land position in the country, quote, with a first mover advantage in Ecuador, Solgold has amassed 3,200 square kilometers of concessions and is well positioned for additional large-scale discoveries. And he continues... Soul gold has significantly greater leverage to copper than gold, and with copper at multi-year lows, we see this is a good time to buy soul gold, particularly for the investment horizons over the medium term. As copper prices improve, and as the project advances through permitting and feasibility, we expect the stock to move up towards our target price, and the analyst has a one-year target price on the stock of $1. And with that, let's go to metal prices. prices and we'd like to once again thank our friends at infomine.com who provide us with these prices they're available to everybody online and you just put in metal prices and infomine and you'll find this page show up in google in the first selection it's the first result and on november 26th we have gold at $1,455.96, that's about $11 cheaper than last week. We have silver at $16.95 per ounce, which is about $0.10 cents cheaper. Platinum is at $901.08, which is about $6 higher than last week. Palladium 
is at $1,792.17, which is about $60 higher than last week. And starting again to flirt with its highs for the year, our highest quote with Palladium, maybe four or five weeks ago, it was at 1797 And then it started to cool off, and now it's creeping back up. It's at 1792 So I assume the car companies hedge everything, but... Uh, Cars aren't getting cheaper with palladium going up like that. Let's just say that. Also, our other metals, on we have a November 22nd quote and then for copper, which is at $2.65 per pound, which is a penny higher than last week. Aluminum is the same price at $0.79. Cents. Lead is at $0.89, cents, which is $0.02 cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $6.53 which is $0.27 less than last week. Tin is at $7.42, up slightly, up $0.04 from last week. Cobalt, surprise, surprise, is at $16.10 for the 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7th week in a row. Not sure if that has to do with the particularities of the cobalt or if maybe there is an issue with the chart. I... If we get $16.10 next week, I'm sending an email, and I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, continuing on, finally, zinc is at $1.05, so definitely cooling off. $0.05 cents lower than last week when it was at $1.10. And so zinc is kind of where it was about two or three months ago. So it had a nice little run up to $1.15, and now it's right back down. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, our feature interview is the fireside chat with Kirkland Lake CEO Tony McCooch. He's in conversation with Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro, who recently also is the chief content officer of the Resource Innovation Group at Glacier Media. So congratulations to him on that. And he is in conversation at the Progressive Mind Forum, which took place on October 16th. So this is before all of yesterday's news. But it's interesting because I think when you look at the quote that Makuch gave in Trisha's article, which we were mentioning earlier in the episode, and we look at what he says in this interview, which you'll hear, there is a consistency that he says this is about profit and and that this is about money. This isn't about becoming the biggest miner ever. This is about making money, is his emphasis, as you'll see. So... It's very interesting to think about that because what we have is the market doesn't believe that. I mean, ultimately, one would assume the market is leaving because they think they are not going to make as much money. And Enjoy the interview. It's a fascinating interview with a leading gold mining CEO. And Kirkland Lake has come a long way in these last few years, and its stock has been rocket launching. There's a lot of drama going on around this, so it feels like a great time to showcase this interview on the podcast. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. One of the highlights of the day, we're very honored to be joined by Tony McCooch, President and CEO of Kirkland Lake Gold. Tony was Chief Executive Officer of Lakeshore Gold prior to taking on his current role with Kirkland Lake, and he was largely instrumental in building Lakeshore Gold from a junior explorer to a low-cost gold producer. Tony's a native of Timmins, Ontario, and has a proven track record of leadership in the gold mining industry. 
In September of 2017, he was nominated Mining Journal America CEO of the Year. In 2015, he achieved the Top Gun Turnaround CEO designation in the Brendan Wood International Press, and he's the recipient of numerous safety awards throughout his career. But we'll talk a little bit more about specifics of Tony's fantastic career and what he's done with Kirkland Lake presently in our uh, fireside chat. So Tony, please come and join me on the stage. Kirkland Lake's been one of the great success stories over the last couple of years, and uh, we'll dive into that a little bit more. But I wanted to start with you first. As an important leader in our mining industry, we're here today talking about innovation and talking about how to do things correctly. Um, you're a shining example of that. I mentioned that you're formerly CEO of Lakeshore. Um, that was uh, until 2016 when Tahoe Resources made the acquisition. And you had previous jobs with FNX Mining, Dynatech, and Kinross. And at Kinross, you actually worked at the Macasa Mine, which is my, you know, in journalism, we like to find those segues. So leading towards a little bit of a segue is Macasa Mine is now a key asset in the Kirkland Lake portfolio. And Macasa has become a, a very important mine throughout the industry because of the innovation that you've ushered in there. So Macasa has a fully electrical fleet. I believe it's going to be the first with a 40-ton electrical truck. Is, is that correct? Well, it, it, it has four electric trucks. We're already up to four. Okay, yeah. so it's amazing what's been going on there. So you've clearly been a pioneer on this. And once things are a success, it's kind of easy to think, oh, well, of course, obviously you would do it. But at the outset, when you decided to go on this strategy, there must have been some big risks associated with it. Our other CEOs would have done it. Can you maybe take us back to when you decided to take the company down this road? What were some of those risks? And how did you get to a place of comfort where you could mitigate them? Well, I mean, maybe we just talk a little bit about Macasa first off. He said, yeah, yeah, I did work at Macasa before. And Macasa just achieved in 2019, uh, you know, 100 years of gold mining in Kirkland Lake. Macasa also achieved uh, 5 million ounces of production. But the first probably 4.4, 4.5 million ounces of that production was done at Macasa, producing somewhere between 60 and 100,000 ounces a year. And it was one year did 100,000 ounces. So for the majority of the time, Macasa was a, a small uh, underground gold mine marginal underground gold mines producing 70, 80,000 ounces a year. And then the other aspect about Macasa, Macasa was track mine. It was operated with battery-powered equipment, battery-powered locomotives, and, and air-operated machines and for the first 65 years of mining. So now coming into Macasa in 2016, the mine had introduced bringing in some electric battery-powered trucks before I got there. So we had some, you know, some smaller 20-ton, which were probably a nominal about 12-ton capacity trucks, and some smaller LHDs running in the mine. They were the first generation of the battery-powered equipment. And, you know, just we sit there with a conundrum to say, okay, what do we do? Because they were built early on as, as you know, just trying to quickly change from a diesel truck or a diesel uh, LHD unit to a battery-powered unit. So just remove the engine and stuck an electric motor and a, and a battery in that compartment. So you can see some of the efficiencies being tied up with the drivetrain, et cetera. So, so going into Macasa, recognizing that the history had been, again, as a track and a, and a pneumatic mine, a battery-powered and a pneumatic mine in the past, you didn't quite have the ventilation systems to support large diesel fleet at the mine. So we definitely, if we needed to, to grow production at the mine, and that's why, you know, in terms of the other segue, going, going from, you know, anywhere from 70 to 100,000 ounces a year to Macasa last year produced over 240,000 ounces. This year scheduled to produce close to 250,000 ounces, and over the next few years growing to over 400,000 ounces of gold a year. Definitely having to make a decision 
and to convert, to go to a, a more productive fleet of equipment. And because of the depth of the mine and the, and the infrastructure there in the past, to focus on battery-powered equipment, and it was kind of easy to, to go with that. The issue was then how do you get productive battery-powered equipment? The industry wasn't quite ready for us. Uh, you know, I know in 2016, uh, I had a discussion with a lot of the mining equipment providers, and, and you got a sense things were going to take a few years before they, they would be ready to really commercialize the equipment. So we partnered with a company down in, in uh, Artisan, which is now owned by Sandvik, down in California, to build. We basically concepted the first 40-ton truck, built it, and operated the first 40-ton truck at Macassa. Now we're on to the fourth one. And to give you a sense on, uh, on, on uh, sort of the amount of use, we, we have 300,000 now effective hours of battery-powered equipment running at Macassa Mine since... In, you know, over the last five or six years. 85% of our production equipment is battery-powered equipment. We're focused on the production equipment, which is the trucks and the LHDs, the scoop trams. Any unexpected difficulties that came along with that? Especially, again, being that in 2016 you were far ahead of the curve. There must have been some technological challenges. You're going through the things around, uh, you know, developing batteries. I mean, first off, there's a cost challenge because the equipment, the, the truck... You know, this this was the other hard part because when you sit there and say, why don't we just buy a diesel truck? I could have bought a could have bought a thirty ton diesel truck for nine hundred thousand dollars to get a forty ton, which is really a thirty ton battery powered truck, was with the batteries that's like two point two million dollars. And then we have to do a whole bunch of rock work in terms of to create charging stations in order to charge the batteries. So you know, and we, we, we looked at all the issues that, that we've been having and, you know, you know again, working with Artisan, basically d- developing uh, new generation batteries, try to have it where, where they cool a lot faster. Even the chemistry of the battery was something we had to look at and it was led by Artisan, the lithium ion uh, phosphate battery, as opposed to the, the other sources. It, it doesn't necessarily have the, the, as much density of power in the battery, but from an underground mining perspective, it, it's a lot more stable. You don't have the opportunity for it to catch fire. So those were some things we had to we had to work on. The new trucks that were developed, the new truck, the first 40-ton truck that was developed, again, went from the concept of being a diesel truck that converted to electric. We just said, it's going to be an electric truck. So that the, instead of having an axle and a, axles and drivetrains and, and, and transmissions, it's got four electric motors on one electric motor on each wheel. And then you got a battery in there. And then instead of being able to, you know, the original trucks where you, the battery was changed like the old battery locomotives where you had to pick it up with a crane, pick it up, put it over here, put it on charge and pick the next one up and put it in. The new ones were designed where you eject the battery like you would eject like a garbage bin, and then the truck can go over and pick up another battery. So it was a lot quicker to that. So we had to address charging batteries. How do you change out batteries? How do you get better utilization and availability of the equipment? We're not there yet. The goal would be, would be say, 95% availability and 80, 85% utilization of the trucks. Right now, we're getting probably 60 to 65% availability on the equipment, so. Okay, and in going through this process now, you've put a lot of capital, time, you've gained some expertise. How does the specific, speaking still specifically to electrification at Mikasa, how does that impact or affect your development plans going forward for other assets? You're now a global producer, you have a strong pipeline. 
How did that affect your thinking on developing going forward? And you know, in five years from now, I'd like to think that all of our mines are running, all, most, the majority of our production equipment is battery powered and, and a mobile fleet. So you know, we're, we're looking at you know, continuing to develop and, and even change out some of the equipment at Macassa to be more productive in terms of battery powered equipment. I like to think that uh, you know, we want to introduce battery powered, at least battery powered LHDs at a mine in Fosterville at the, at the deep part of the mine. It would definitely help us. We need to continue working on developing trucks for long haul up ramps. We're, we're open to developing some of the, the other equipment or working with, you know, whether it's jumbos, et cetera. I mean, that's, that kind of stuff is easy, I think. But, you know, if I say here in five years from now, we'd like to have all our mines with, you know, 85% plus of our production equipment, production fleet to be battery powered or electric vehicles, it's definitely, I, I think, the way to go. It's quieter. You're not generating as much heat. You're not generating, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other benefits of using the electric equipment. And from a productivity point of view, and the fact that the equipment right off the bat comes with computers built into it. So then you should be, you know, the ability to automate them and to be able to in real time know what's going on in that piece of equipment should be a lot better. And even to the fact that we can, they, they can be semi-autonomous. Have you, I'm just wondering, have you seen any benefits on the people side of things? I mean, a big issue in our mining industry is recruiting young people. Is this something you're finding that people relate to? Has it been easier to recruit people to Mikasa than, say, Fosterville or another mine where it doesn't have an electric fleet? I think the working conditions in the mine are much better with the, with the electric fleet than with the diesel fleet. So if we had the diesel fleet, we'd probably have a harder time in terms of attracting people. Definitely heat and, and ventilation is, would be a concern underground at Macassa. When I first got to Macassa, we had about 200,000 CFM of air. Uh, currently, we're trying to run somewhere around 300,000 CFM of air. If we'd have had an all-diesel fleet for that, what we have for a fleet there at Macassa, we'd probably be have close to double that in terms of air quality, air. So the ability to operate and to produce the amount of gold we have, we wouldn't be able to do that. So it would affect the people. The other side, though, on the people, um, you know, and, I mean, and, and that's an, another aspect that's happening is as we're developing the battery-powered equipment, you, you, you know that the, there's a lot of moving parts on, on, and a lot of parts that, that were in the diesel equipment that doesn't, doesn't come over to the battery. And, and so from an attraction point of view, for now, if you're a maintenance person or you're, you're a young person wanting to develop and, and, and get into the maintenance side of the business, the maintenance mechanic that works on a battery-powered truck or scoop tram is going to be not only a millwright, not only a, you know understand equipment, but they also have to be intelligent electrics and electronics, and they probably have to understand a technology a bit too, and, and maybe understand a little bit of programming. So some greater complexity needed in the skills. So from a, I think from a traction point of view, it should be it it, it we could be a much more interesting job in the future, right? I'd be remiss not to ask you, I mean, here you are at the, the forefront of innovation within uh, producing mines. What do you see as the future of the mine? I mean, you've, you've spent some time talking about the mining fleet. So if you can maybe touch upon that, where that's going to be in five to 10 years. But also, is there other elements within the, uh, within the mine, within the processing of minerals that you see that are really ripe for the same kind of innovation like we've seen with the mining fleet? Some of the things we're working towards, first part, yeah, we talk about battery technology and, and, and bringing the battery fleet in, the battery equipment into the mobile fleet because, again, I'll go back, battery-operated mines, Campbell Red Lake mine, all the original mines, any, any mines developed in Canada prior to the 70s was all pretty much battery-powered uh, electric equipment. So it's definitely that's, you know, and from a mobile equipment point of view, I see that happening. I think, you know, getting taken more advantage of, of AI and being able to uh, automate a lot more of the process that are happening in the mine 
and in terms of what you're doing, in terms of that should help improve uh, working conditions and improve safety in the mine. Definitely, I can see us going to that. But there's a lot of other things that we're working on. We're looking at ways to, you know, to improve, you know, be able to, how do, how do you log core more effectively? How do you determine uh, from the core, I mean, what the, you get a, get a quick or, or, or accurate view on, and what you can do from, from a grade perspective of the core. I mean, that, there's a lot of work, and we're doing some of that work down in Australia. How do you, you know, better understand what the ore body is and how, how to separate ore and waste? I think there's a lot of areas there. Definitely, I think that we need to work at better ways to understand where people are in, in, in our mines. We send a lot of people to work currently, not all the mines do, where we send them off in the morning and unless the supervisor will see them, you don't quite know where they are. We're, we're in real time. We should be able to understand where people and the equipment are. I can see that happening. And I can see improvements in ventilation methodology and in terms of, you know, overall, maybe taking some of, a lot of the labor and the risk components out of the operation and, and having that more machine driven. We've focused now a little bit on Mikasa, and we've talked a little bit about your own personal journey. Let's take it a little bit broader now to, to Kirkland Lake. I'm sure most of the people in the audience are familiar with uh, the company. It's grabbed a lot of headlines lately. But for those that aren't, Kirkland Lake has two of the highest grade uh, producing mines in the world, one in Canada, Mikasa, and one in, uh, in Australia, Fosterville. Let me grab a few little stats here off my cheat sheet. So by my count, you've gone from 155,000 ounces to 600,000 ounces of production currently and you expect to be at one million within five to six years. And correspondingly, when you have those numbers, I mean, you'll have your chance if I got them a little bit off, but when you have those kinds of numbers, you can expect share prices to lift a little, and they've lifted just a little bit. So in two years, Kirkland Lake Gold's stock price has uh, increased by 250%. So really a sensational story. And part of that story has been mergers and acquisitions, right? Because Fosterville was something that you did acquire. And we've seen this year of 2019 in some ways was, you know, the year of the M&A within our industry. Can you reflect a little bit about how M&A was key to your strategy and your success? And maybe your thoughts on what's going on in the industry right now in terms of it's something that needs to happen? Again, getting back to Kirk and Lake was in 2016, the merger of three small junior companies and, you know, the weather, with Kirk and Lake Gold, Inc., and, and St. Andrews Goldfields had operated the mines in, uh, you know, Holt Holloway Taylor mines, and then uh, the, the Newmarket operation, which had three operating mines in, in Australia. And by putting the three junior companies together, uh, you know, a biggest part of the synergy was capital market synergies. You know, we were able to take a different perspective in terms of looking at our operations. We were able to shut down. We closed uh, three mines. We took 120,000 ounces of production. We, we, we closed it, whereas St. Andrews, that was the whole company back in 2015. So it gave us that ability to do that, to take a different approach in terms of looking at what you're doing at the operations. And, and, and it, it allowed us to invest a lot of money in diamond drilling and, and exploration. We had significant discoveries at Fosterville and, and a lot of progress there. And we've been able to, we grew our reserves at Macassa. But a big part of that we, is we started drilling and we spent more money in the last quarter of 2016 and, and 2017, say at Fosterville, than been spent there previous 10, 15 years. So it, it gives us that ability to explore because, you know, when you're running, a, and if I go back to when running Lakeshore as a single asset company, you're always stuck with, with, even though things are going well, there's always rumors or something happening in the market that could affect you. A drop in gold price can have a more significant effect on, on your share price than, than a lot of others. The other thing can happen is you can have 
you know, we have a forest fire in the region that's a few kilometers away, but, you know, you could lose 10 or 20 percent of your share price. So it, it gave us the ability to focus more on, on our operations. How do we grow value for the shareholders? How do we finance things internally? Look at it from a business perspective more than having to, to, to try to chase the share price all the time. And that kind of investment in drilling in Fosterville, can you take us a little bit through your thinking process there as well? What gave you, I mean, because the results were spectacular. This is now one of the most exciting uh, mines in the world. What gave you the confidence to do that? Were there certain things that you were able to pick up on that previous operators and other potential acquirers weren't able to see? Well, I mean, uh, the, the previous operator was seeing uh, a change in, in mineralization and was the grade it was improving and the grade it improved from, you know, four and a half, five grams to, to all of a sudden seven grams in, in 2016. Uh, they were seeing the principal gold and the change in mineralization. So we seen that, took a look at it. You can see that things were definitely improving at depth. There was a few, there was a few hole, uh, drill holes that were pretty interesting. But, you know, we didn't expect it to, to be 30, 40, or 50 grams. We did think that things were going to get better. And if things just got better or even stayed as good as what, what they were starting to look, forecast at 7 to 9 grams, then we would have been a very successful acquisition. Right? So, you know, if part of this business, you've got to be, you know, you got to not be scared to, to get involved in the details and look at the small little things. And, you know, I was lucky I had a, a gentleman like Quentin Henning with me and, you know, we were talking about, the, you know, the difference in the mineralization, what's happening and why is this? And th- this is a significant thing that, that's going on. So. Great. I, I want to bring it back a little bit to the M&A, just because your example is such a positive one. But earlier in the year, there was certainly some trepidation, I, I think, within Toronto and within Canada about some of the uh, M&A. Pierre Lassonde, captain of the industry, uh, was on record with regards to the, uh, the barrack situation, you know, had some critiques of it in terms of uh, the possible hollowing out of headquarters in Canada. You're now emerging. Kirkland Lake is now becoming a very important Canadian gold producer. Do you think it's important? Where do, you, where do you stand on this very issue? Is it important for Canada to continue to have an important presence with headquarters? Is M&A something that, that threatens that? Well, I mean, the first part, I mean, Canada is definitely the center of where you can finance and continue, especially out of the TSX, continues to be the place where, where my companies come to to get money to invest and govern new operations. I don't think that's going to change. I mean, you've had, you know, with, with uh, some of these mergers, you've had some of the, some of the uh, big head offices move out of, out of Canada. But, I mean, that happened to us back in the days when Naranda left and back in the days when uh, Inco and Falconbridge uh, left Canada. You know, left. So, so you know, that, those things happen, but new companies come and emerge, and something, something like Kirk and Lake, you know, emerges at Kirk and Lake, and, you know, there's a lot of other companies that emerge, and, you know, companies like Agnico Ego, et cetera, come more to the forefront. So some of it is natural evolution. I don't think we should be worried about it. I think we should, we should take, you know, look at it head-on as being a good thing because it shows if, if people are wanting to come and buy Canadian mining companies, then it shows that we must be doing a lot of good things, right? Find that silver lining. Do you have aspirations to create the next Barrick Gold? Do you see Kirk, uh, Kirkland Lake Gold being the, the world's biggest gold producer at some point? Uh, let, let me put it this way. We, we don't want to... We, we'd like to be the seen as, as being maybe one, the world or one of the world's, uh, you know, uh, most profitable gold mining companies. 
you know, and, and I think our goal within Kirk and Lake is, is, to, is, to, is to build a company that's profitable, that leading in terms of earnings and uh, in cash flow generation, value generation for its shareholders. We just happen to be a gold miner doing that. If we can do that and grow value for, in, in the business, that's our main focus. And so, you know, it's not about producing four or five million ounces. It's about producing the top earnings or the top, uh, you know, cash flow per share. That's, that's what's important, right? The other part is, you know, and, I, and without, you know, sounding too aloof is we, you know, we compete for the investor. So we're not trying to get an investor that just wants to invest in a gold mine, in, in, a, in a gold business. We have to compete for investors. And we'd like to believe that we can, in, can then compete for the investor that, that is looking at, you know, like, okay, I'm going to, I want to buy Apple stock and I want to buy, I might want to buy Microsoft and I might want to buy Walmart. And hey, here's another company if I got to diversify. That, you know, that's a, that's a type of company we really want to be. So Great. It's very evident in talking to you how thorough your knowledge is of the entire business. Absolutely nothing against accountants who become CEOs or lawyers that become CEOs. They have their own strengths. But it is very fun and it's refreshing speaking to you uh, when you have this kind of level of knowledge at every aspect. It comes out when you're talking. So I'd like to give the audience a bit more on that, on where that's coming from. You're the son of Polish immigrants. Your dad was a miner in Timmins. That's where you, you grew up. What were you take us back to then? What were your early impressions of what it was to be a miner or what the mining industry was? You know, I always liked uh, like working in my hands. I always liked getting dirty and doing stuff. My, my father didn't want me to be a, get into mining because, you know, he wanted me to do something else, be a dentist or something, and I just always went towards doing this kind of work. It's, it's a good kind of work. You think about in, in the mining industry, we get, people get paid very well. We, we treat people well. We train people well. You get to work fairly autonomously. It's not a factory. You know, you, people get to work, you know, and make their own decisions and go out and, try and do things, you know, individually within the mine or as, as a small team, two or three guys working together. And, you know, it, it was always that part. And we part that, you know, the, so, it, so it's good work. I was always interested in doing that. And, and then you just, you know, you just fall in love with, with understanding all about all the things about whether it's geology and, and, and geology is really cool and, 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 and metallurgy and, you know, and even, you know, what, what do you have to do to mine, mine the rock? So. You know, I think the biggest part is some people might feel comfortable with uh, going into a, into a room and looking at a, a banking ledgers, and some of us feel more comfortable looking at the rocks and, and not just looking at the rock, but saying, hey, look at the different minerals, right? And We had uh, our opening presentation has been much talked about since he's done it. It keeps coming up. George Hemingway spoke about uh, trust. Now, he was speaking mainly about the mining industry building trust with the external stakeholders. Uh, but it strikes me uh, with you when you have this kind of background and having done, you've worked in almost every single capacity in the mine. Uh, there's also an element of building trust with your staff and with your workers and, in, and through a company. Uh, has that been a key part? Have you seen that played out in your career, being able to have this kind of uh, you know, hands-on experience? Supposedly, as you get older, is you get to reflect back and look, and, and sometimes you got to try to be a coach or try to try to ask people the right questions. I think the thing that you're able to do, and, and the thing that you like, first off, is you got a sense of knowing what needs to be done or what can be done, what people are doing and what they're trying to do. And most people are do trying to do things really, really good. Sometimes, you know, none of us are perfect. We make a lot of mistakes. And it's not that we make mistakes is the problem. The problem is if we make a mistake and we don't learn from it, or we make a mistake, you know, not by accident, but on purpose. So, you know, you, you're able to, to understand the, what the process and what's going on, what people are doing, and, and work towards trying to help them succeed and not get so caught up in, in either the negatives or, and, and, and help, help bring people back online to, to, so that they can be successful. Because the other aspect about the 
success of Kirk and Lake Gold, or the main aspect of our success is that it's 2,500 people working together and building success. And it's, it's all of us as a group, everybody trying to help each other in terms of, of doing that. And some people have to do, you know, 10% more, some people do 100% more to, in order to build success, but everybody's, everybody's doing that, right? Well, would you just have a little bit of fun with it here. Of all the jobs that you've done coming up through the ranks, leaving aside C-suite, what was the, the job at the mine sites, or maybe not, that you uh, enjoyed doing the most? Well, I liked doing a lot of the jobs I did. I enjoyed working in engineering, and I started as a rock mechanics engineer, and I got to do a lot of really neat stuff, and I got to, you know, run computer programs. I got to, you know, build, my, build computers from scratch, if you go back, you know, date, date ourselves, but, you know, we built computers from scratch. And, you know, back in the early days, we, you had plotters and you had digitizers, but you didn't have any program. You had to program it yourself, so that was interesting. I got to, you know, supervise people. One of the toughest jobs and most, you know, learning jobs I've ever did was I, I was a general foreman or a mine captain. That was uh, definitely a, a, a type of a job that kind of, that really builds your character and gets you to understand and, and How so? What were some of the key challenges of that? I would say you, you could never have a good week because there was always something you're dealing with. You, know, you have 100 people working for you. Uh, you have, uh, you know, four or five direct supervisors so, and, 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 then, and then between you and, and the hourly workers. And then you have the whole engineering staff and then the, the management above you coming down, you know, asking you for getting this. And so you, you, you're, 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 you have a lot of responsibility, and lo, lo, but, but also a lot of ability to get things done with the people. And, and so the biggest part of it was the fun of working with all the people and getting them motivated and seeing what we can do from a... You know, I used to always... You know, the, the, some of the best parts of that job is you could tell at the end of the day the person who had a hard day's work and worked hard underground, they came up and they had a big smile on their face. I mean, they might be dirty, they might be tired, but they were smiling and in, 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 there was a deep smile and I enjoyed that. That's great. I mean, for a lot of us that are city-bound, that's an experience that we don't see, and we sometimes just see the hardship of it. But there is a, a joy, a, an enjoyment and a joy that goes on the site as well. Has that fed into the corporate culture that you've helped create at Kirkland Lake Gold, some of those experiences? I like to believe so. I think in terms of the, the people in our company, I think it's we try to focus on, you know, being, being you know, what, what do we have to do as a mining company to produce gold the most effectively, responsibly, and and safely as possible, and you know that's with you know recognizing that's with people that 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 are doing work right, and so you know I think that you know none of us in the company think we're any better than everybody else. We we all have the same you know we just have different jobs, but we're all we're all focused on on the same thing right, and you know and and I think the other aspect I'd like to believe with the culture we have is that the most important people in the company are the people right now that are doing the work. You know, there's much talk as well about uh, millennials specifically in our industry and how they bring in their own uh, perspective and their own thoughts on what makes a great work environment. And even the, the generation coming up be behind the millennials, it's a, it's a key issue for our industry. I'd like to get your thoughts on what your experiences have been. Let's, let's keep it to millennials. What do you see in, your, in the workforce with millennials? Maybe some of their strengths? Maybe some of the areas that you have to pay more attention to to get them on board. Is there trends there that you see that could be helpful to people in our audience? You know, you think about that. Somebody asked me that question a few weeks back. And I was thinking about it. You know, like we were the baby boomers, right? And I remember listening to, you know, even to your parents talking and me. And, you know, you had, 
rock and roll coming out. We were young and everybody thought we were lazy and we listened to crazy music and we, we didn't want to work. And we all came in and, and, and we did all right. And I, I look at the, the millennials or the, the new kids coming in. I mean, I think the kids are all right. I mean, you, the kids today, are their access to, to technology and learning, I mean, they, they learn more probably by the time they're five years old than we maybe got to learn till the time we were 10. And so you think about you know, the wisdom that we might get when we're 60 or 70 years old, well, the, maybe the, 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 this generation, is, they're going to have that wisdom when they're 50, right? So, so things are going to move a lot quicker. I think the, the work ethic is there, the, uh, the ability to question and the ability to, uh, the willingness to sound off a little bit is, is a lot more open with this generation of kids, which is good because, you know, the, the, the worst thing that happens is we go down a path that everybody says this is the way to go. You need people that are asking questions and, and looking for different and, and new ways. I see a lot of energy in new millennials, so, you know, like I say, I think the kids are all right. right? And, you know, like, get, you know, the other part, you asked the question about, you know, the view of the mind of the future. And, and, and I'll go back again to when I took this job as a mine captain. I remember I was pretty young, but I, I go to drift heading, and, and, you know, the, after about three, two, three or four days, the, the, one of the miners says to me, he said, you know, you're not as smart as old Curly Alexander. I said, why? Well, he would tell us, you know, we've got to go 100 feet, we're going to hit ore. You can't tell us that. Well, the difference, what I figured out, it took me about a couple of weeks to figure out, he was the one who kept all the prints to himself. He didn't share the information, right? So, so that's why, so now take this step to the future. I mean, you got people now that are, that, you know, that are more and more, you have the workforce of the future is going to be more and more in tune of what's going on. You don't have to tell them what to do. They're going to tell you what they're doing and what's going on. I mean, and that's really where, where the success lies. So you got, you got more and more access to technology, more access to information, and information in a workplace is everything. Right? That touches upon, uh, for those that were here for uh, Shelby Yee's great presentation, the executive from uh, Rockmass was talking just about that, about how companies have to take a, more of a position where, of not hoarding information that if we're going to move this forward, there has to be some, uh, some sharing of that. So that, that, that's nice that that touches upon that. We are talking about innovation. We are talking about the future. We had a great question from the audience, and I actually had this question in my list as well. Coming into gold, we have a top gold CEO here. Let's put you on the hot seat a little bit. Cryptocurrencies are getting beat up a little bit. I mean, Libra is not looking so hot for Facebook these days, but still, cryptocurrencies is a thing. Why do we really need gold? Gold is a currency. Two-part question. Do you ever see a future where cryptocurrencies somehow undermine gold's go-to position as the kind of default currency? Give us your opinion on gold going forward. How about if I take a step back and I go back to 1996. I was a manager for Kinross at Casamine. And we had uh, our uh, budget meetings uh, in Toronto. And we had somebody come and present to us that the price of gold at the time was about $330 an ounce. And he presented that he said, sorry, he's talking to a gold group, he said, but he expects that over the next few years, gold's going down to under 250 an ounce. And he said gold's going to stay there till about 2005, 2006. And then he said it's going to come back. And, you know, we all asked the questions, you know, how does he see that? Well, this guy was somebody who studied demographics. And he, and he talked about we were all, you know, again, generation of the baby boomers. We were all going through this period of time. We didn't need gold. And we were looking at other, other things to do. But he said, as we all get age and we all get start thinking like our mothers and our fathers did again, and then we're going to get back into buying gold, you know, something that as an investment. And so, you know, so getting into that, you know, when you talk about cryptocurrencies, I mean, you know, we can we can almost talk, we, you know, you know, how much cash do you keep in your wallet? 
Everybody, we're really using cryptocurrencies today. It's, it's your credit card, right? You, and you're buying stuff. So do we need to create a new currency instead of a fiat currency? Because, I mean, I, I can see the governments having, at, at some point in time, not wanting you to have some new currency they, that they can't control, right? So we almost have paperless currency as we speak. But, but on the other side, you know, we always, every now and again, we, we, we might tend to, to grab a, the, the paper money or, or, you know, one thing good about gold is the physical, you can look at it and it, and it holds its value and it does hold, still holds its value even after, you know, the, the doomsdays from 1996 till 2003, 2004 with the gold where, where you thought it was going down, down to nowhere. Like I'm not a, somebody who believes gold is going to be five or $10,000 an ounce, but I think gold is going to continue to always uh, maintain its support. It might have some dips and, and it could be, again, you know, the, the, the younger generation has different perspectives in terms of, of what they want in terms of value. But at some point in time, we all get to the same, you know, maybe they'll get wisdom before we get wisdom. But there's a point in time when you say, I need to have some tangible assets. And, you know, tang one tangible asset is gold. The other tangible asset is your home and your land and wh where you live. So I'm thinking that's still always going to be relevant. Right? And that wraps up this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you once again for listening. We encourage you to share this with your friends. And please review us if you get the chance on the Apple Podcast directory. Wouldn't it be great if we were right at the top of the mining listings? I haven't looked, but maybe we already are. Let's, we'll have to take a look at that. Um, if we're not, please give us a review. Let's boost it up there and get it up there. So thanks again, once again, for listening. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.